HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Byright, a family-owned and San Francisco-grown market that's passionate about creating community through food. For more information, visit buywrightmarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Meant to be Eaten. I'm your host, Andrea Ween, and joining me on the phone today is my guest, Dan Pashman, host of the wildly successful award-winning podcast, The Sporkful, a show for eaters, not foodies, and author of the cookbook, Eat More, Better, How to Make Every Bite More Delicious. Dan, it's such an honor to have you on the show. Oh, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. So recently, The Sporkful put out a miniseries titled Your Mom's Food, that looks at the ways different cultural foods signify our larger differences. So following four families, you showed us how asking the simple question, what's for dinner, can reveal so much about us and the relationships we have with the people we love. And I definitely want to come back and talk about this, but I want to talk to you first about what I learned uh, about your last Thanksgiving, which is that you spatchcocked your turkey, and I did too, for the very first Uh, time. Nice. How'd it go for you? You know, not that well. (laughs) It went okay. It went okay. I did it. Um, it ended up okay in the end, but I was so nervous about overcooking it because of the shortened cooking time that I actually undercooked it. And then we sat around for 20 minutes looking at the sides. So I don't think my family's going to let me do it again this year. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I have experimented with a spatchcock, but I have, you know, I, 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 the thing that's been primarily on my mind as we head in to start the Thanksgiving season is, uh, is just like how, how food media contributes to the collective anxiety that we like feel this need to cook something different or new or like that somehow we're doing it wrong because there's all these other ways to do it. And I feel like I have all the, I, I'm like contributing to the problem and also a victim of the problem simultaneously. Well, yeah, you asked on your, uh, your <laughs> like you've I, been asking people to. And I'm like, this is good, but I wish it was more like that. And, you know, there's just, there's a million ways to do it. I don't know. I wonder, sometimes I wonder if maybe part of the problem is that turkey just isn't the greatest thing. You it's know, true. It's not the greatest. It's true. I agree. I think it was probably one of the better turkeys once it, once it got cooked. It wasn't as dried out as it normally is. So I feel like, you know, there's something to be said for it. Yeah, but like my mother-in-law, she 
puts it, she uh, puts a ton of water in the bottom of the pot and she covers it in foil very tightly and cooks it for like 10 hours at a low temperature and it like braises the turkey and it's super soft and tender but it's totally different from the spatchcock turkey but it's also really delicious in its own way and I'm like I kind of want to try that you know but what do you do so with the skin? Options. You have to have you have to have the crispy skin. Listening and they're like, maybe I should do that. Am I doing it wrong? <laughs> well, it's okay. I think ev- whatever everyone does, there's you know certain elements that you can't mess up. I did make Joy the Baker's sweet potato pie last year instead of pumpkin pie, which was going kind of rogue, and people liked it. So you know, there's there's tweaks to be made. Nice. There you go. So I listened to your episode on Cuban food, which wasn't part of the mini series, but I think, you know, still very relevant for the discussion that we're having today. So it was really about how much of the Cuban food in Cuba is not like much of the Cuban food in Miami. And actually, the Cuban food in Miami is better because of access to the ingredients that aren't available in Cuba. And really this lost food culture that in many ways left when the migrants fleed from Cuba to Florida. What do you feel like you learned from doing that episode? Um, well, I, I would I would push back against a little bit uh, where you said that it's better in Miami. There are some people like the Cuban, the expats who who fled Castro. They all say it's better in Miami, and I'm, and there are a lot of people who would say that. But you know, we talked to Chef Doug Rodriguez in the uh, in the show as well, and he's Cuban American, but he goes back to Cuba a lot, and he says, no, it's more authentic in Cuba, even though it's different. You know, and so. Um, it, it, you know, the food, as is often the case, you know, the, the food quickly became like a stand-in for a long-running political debate, you know, which is, and we got some feedback from people who said, you know, you made it sound like things are too bad in Cuba. And other people say, you made it sound like things are not bad enough in Cuba. Uh, and, you know, that's sort of the central um, argument. But, uh, but the thing that I learned the most from it was this idea that, you know, it's just it's, it's a really interesting question of identity, food, and identity. Like, what is the real Cuban food? Uh, you know, it, uh, part of me says, well, by definition, it's whatever food they ha- they're cooking in Cuba. But uh, but if if uh, if external influences, if if the policies of the Cuban government and the American government conspire to force the Cuban people to change the food that they're cooking in their kitchens because of scarcity and shortages, well, then. Uh, you know, does that mean that Cuban food, like, is, it, is, is Cuban food the platonic ideal? Is it the food that the people of Cuba would cook if they had all the ingredients they wanted or needed? Or is it whatever they're cooking by definition? Uh, because in Miami, they have all the food they need, and they cook the food that people ate in Cuba 50 or 75 years ago. Um, and so it, it just, uh, it, to me, it, it was an interesting, it was an interesting sort of philosophical question to pose, and I'm not sure what the answer is. Uh, it wasn't really our goal in that episode to to have a definitive answer one way or the other. I, I was just intrigued by that question of you know because there's a lot of cuisines and a lot of dishes that that um, that uh, a certain ethnic group or national you know or a certain group of people it, it, it becomes their dish out of necessity, perhaps not by choice, but over time and over generations it still becomes theirs. And it's still, and, they, and, and over time they, they take pride in it, and it becomes part of their identity, even if it wasn't their choice to make it that way in the first place. And so it, you're sort of seeing that happen in real time in Cuba, and I think that's interesting. 
Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, you look at some of the most delicious food that we have, and it came from times of strife or peasant foods or these things, you know, where people really had to use what they had around them. And I actually had this experience. So I went to Cuba last year and kind of feel a little bit part of the problem, right, of <laughs> the whole tourist issue that you guys mentioned on uh, on your show. I didn't do any of the food tours and kind of created my own trip. But the food really, to me, wasn't very good, which was a little disappointing after having Miami Cuban food. So it really raised for me this question of authenticity, because I think when we're saying something is authentic or not, people often equate that with being better, right? So if you're getting Indian food in India versus Jackson Heights in New York City, you're thinking the Indian food in India is more authentic because it's better. So what does that really mean then for authenticity when a cultural food is better outside of its homeland, perhaps? Or, you know, does, does authenticity really even exist then? Right. Now that's and that's something we wrestle with on the Sporkful a lot. And you, I feel like at this point, anytime you describe any food as as authentic, you have to kind of put a disclaimer on it because the word itself is. I don't know if I would say that it's problematic, but it's sort of like, you know, you, you could go to a, a, a village in India and you could have two homes right next door to each other and they could have two different recipes for the exact same dish. So which one of those is authentic? Uh, you know, I, I would, they, both, they, they both would probably strike me as pretty authentic, uh, even if they're different. Uh, but, there is, but, but I still think that that word still applies and it's still the best word we have for something that's a little bit sort of inexplicable. It's not necessarily in a recipe. It's just something about um, the feeling behind it, I guess. I don't know. Maybe there's a better way to put it. But, yeah, it's, 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 it's always an interesting question when people describe something as really authentic. And it's sort of like authentic to who? And then, and then who decides what's authentic? And those are questions we struggle with a lot. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's kind of the whole arm of our show is trying to un- unpack those and wrestle with those and figure out, you know, what does that look like so everyone can maybe have more of a common language? Yeah, absolutely. So in episode of three, I think it was, of your mom's food, you talked to Soledad O'Brien, who is Cuban, and she was saying that how staying connected to Cuban food was really important to her mother after she left Cuba. And she talked about how now this connection has become less important to her or less important to her kids, I should say. So when you were doing that show and some of these other ones, what kinds of problems did you see children of immigrant immigrant parents running into when they were reconciling their American present with their past or their family's past? Yeah, I mean, that, that's certainly been something that's been interesting for me to learn more about and hear more about different people's experiences, uh, first-generation folks. Um, and, you know, I, I don't want to speak for any of those folks. You know, you can hit them on the sporkful speaking very well for themselves. But, um, but you know, I, I, some of the themes that, that, that sort of seem to get repeated are the idea of, of uh, not quite feeling like 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 that you're accepted as a full american yet when you go back to the country where your parents were born you feel really super american uh and very aware that you're not from that place um and feeling sort of caught between cultures. I think the phrase that uh, Hassan Minaj used when we had him on, is, and he uses in his work in general, he's from the Daily Show comedian, um, is a third culture kid. And so that's something that, uh, that, you know, that we, we hear a lot. And um, with Soledad O'Brien, her, her situation was interesting because she didn't really try that hard. She's not a big food person, and she didn't try that hard to, to learn her mom's recipes, or she doesn't love to cook, and she... she it wasn't until it was too late that she came to regret not having learned her mom's recipes more and not having, you know, and not having that, that connection. Yeah. That's something that I think about a lot. My grandmother 
is an immigrant from Romania, and she cooks, obviously, all the Romanian foods of her childhood, which, for good and bad, right, she was there during communism, so the meat's always overdone on Thanksgiving right. for her. But something that I think about quite often is who preserves those uh, those traditions. And I think it's also interesting to think of who gets to serve as the guardians of food culture. So is it those who have left those places and have maybe developed a more sharper, critical eye from the outside, or those who remain kind of in the motherland and are still there and evolving with whatever the food culture is evolving with in that place? Right, absolutely. Well, that's something I've certainly heard, is that especially when you have a large exodus from a certain country coming to the U.S. or, coming, or going elsewhere, uh, for whatever reason that that, you know, that can obviously happen for a variety of reasons. But when it happens, um, the people who leave tend to, you know, when they set up in, in their new home, they're, they're obviously searching for a little piece of, of the home that they left, and they will try their best to cook the food they that they remember from where they came from, um, but they end up sort of creating a time capsule. And so, for instance, you know, you ask, if you ask Chef Rick Bayless, he'll tell you that the food that the, the high-end chefs in Mexico are cooking today is very different, not just from these sort of like burrito and taco places in, in the U.S., but, but also of even the higher-end Mexican places in the U.S., and the, they're pushing things much forward. And so sometimes, um, you know, when a, when a large group of immigrants comes, they, they, you get this sort of time capsule effect. Um, and, you know, maybe that's sort of part of what's happening uh, with Cuba. But, yeah, it's interesting also, like, for me, one of the other things I've learned from these conversations, so, so my wife, she's first generation. Her parents were, grew up in communist Czechoslovakia. And so when we have these conversations on the sportful, sometimes she can really identify with this feeling of sort of growing up as a child of immigrants and um, feeling like uh, your culture at home is a little different from the culture of your peers. Um, but the flip side is that, you know, that she's white and her parents are white, and so she was able to pass and blend in uh, much more readily and easily. So you also you know, get a useful lesson about privilege and the benefits that she's had, um, you know, in, in spite of being the child of immigrants. There's things that people have talked about on the Sporkful having to deal with that my wife, who's also a child of immigrants, never had to deal with. Yeah, I have that experience as well. I mean, my, people meet my mom and she still doesn't have an accent. She came over when she was 14. So she really lost a lot of that. And she has no desire to go back and really no desire to connect with any of, um, any of the foods really that she grew up with. It's, she completely Americanized. So I think you also see in some people uh, the acceptance to fit in a new culture outweighs the, the comfort of where you came from. Right. That's, that's totally right. And, and also something that, that I've seen is this, this situation where, um, you know, the, 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 the folks who came from another country uh, are very eager to try to fit in as readily as possible and sort of, you know, don't make waves, uh, go with the flow. And, and their kids then who are born in the U.S., they grow up feeling much more entitled to push back and to carve out a piece of their own identity um, and, and, and aren't afraid to speak up uh, as much. And, and that's, you know, sometimes creates generational tensions with their own parents or tensions with people who don't look like them. So those are interesting, difficult situations. Yeah, absolutely. You are listening to Meant to be Eaten, and when we come back after this break from our sponsors, we will continue talking to Dan Pashman, host of The Sporkful.
Byright is a family-owned and San Francisco-grown market that's passionate about creating community through food. From organic farm direct local produce, sustainably raised meats and artisan cheeses, to food-friendly wines, house-made foods, and dinners, Byright is an essential San Francisco destination for any food lover or cook. And no trip is complete without a visit to the renowned Byright Creamery and Bake Shop for a scoop of salted caramel ice cream. Now celebrating 75 years in the Mission District of San Francisco, visit buyrightmarket.com to learn more. Byright is a proud business member of Heritage Radio Network, supporting good food media from coast to coast. For those just joining us, I'm on the line with Dan Pashman, host of the popular podcast, The Sporkful. And we're talking about the ways that authenticity and food culture issues pop up in unexpected ways. So, Dan, when we talk about cultural appropriation in food, which I'm still hesitant even exists, <laughs> we're often looking at what's on the outside, right? Yours versus mine. And what you looked at in the Your Mom's Food series is how this question of what's yours and mine shakes out in a household where, where cultures are really trying to coincide or blend together. Do you feel like there's such a thing as political correctness at home when you're cooking with another's culture, say your husband or wife? Um, I don't know if I would use the term political correctness, but, uh, you know, anytime two people live together and have a relationship together, there's always going to be grinding edges. There are going to be things that the two, that like, oh, you grew up doing it this way, I grew up doing it that way, I like it better this way, whether it's food or how messy your house is or oh, any one of a million other things that have to be worked out when you share a living space with another human being. And, um... And, you know, food is one of the biggest ones because everyone does it and you do it all the time. Uh, at least I do. And, uh, and so it's, just, it, it's, it's sort of a gateway to explore larger issues. Uh, uh, you know, and, and so what we wanted to get into with that was sort of like, well, if, uh, when, people, when people in interracial marriages or, or people from different cultures get married, how, how do those grinding edges work themselves out? in the world of food. And I think it's definitely, like, I don't know that I would use the word political correctness, but... I, but Maybe heightened sensitivity. Yeah, I mean, yeah, look, I, I think anytime you're living with someone in a long-term relationship, you've got to try to be sensitive to where they're coming from. You do? Wait. And, and, uh, <laughs> and so, and especially, you know, to understand their, to try your best to understand their experience and see things through their eyes. And uh, that's something, you know, we can all do better at, so... So, yeah, I, I, I think that that's, that's a good thing. And sometimes, uh, yeah, I would say yes. Yeah, the producer, <laughs> the producer for the show, Coral and I, we had a discussion about episode two of the series, which features what you called, I think, a meat and potatoes Midwest girl and an Indian masala man and how they navigate their familial food tensions, if you will. And Coral was saying that she thought the episode didn't come out as, you know, a tidy package with a bow with them really recon reconciling on their differences. And I actually liked that about it because when we're talking about these issues, we're talking about real life and sometimes it doesn't come out as perfect or ideal. And it's like, this is, you know, how we're choosing to deal with this right now. Uh, and I know that you and your wife have also navigated some of these tensions. You did a whole episode about it. So what did this series bring up for you, or what did you take away from it at your own home? Well, I think it was, it was nice that my wife, so one of the episodes was my wife and I talking about how she, um, she grew up in a kosher, where, like, you know, there's a couple episodes in the series where it's like, this person is, like you said, an in, you know, Indian guy and a white Midwestern girl, and, you know, it's an obvious, it, it looks on paper like an obvious uh, culture clash, um, whereas, you know, on paper, my wife and I are both 
white Jewish American people from the New York metro area. Like it seems like, well, that should be an easy one. Uh, and yet we have our own food tensions in our house sometimes because my wife was raised in a kosher home and I wasn't. Uh, and so the idea of meat and cheese together on the same plate just weirds her out, even though she's not super religious. It's just that when you've been raised a certain way, then, you know, you have those feelings. And so you know, I think it was good for us to, you know, I had kind of uh, resisted, you know, early in our relationship when we first started, uh, when we were living together, there was tension over how kosher our home should be. And she was never saying, I want it to be super duper strict kosher. And I was never saying, like, let's cook pork chops all day long. But, but you know, exactly where in the middle we were going to meet was a, was, was a question. You know, like a, a truly kosher home would have two separate sets of dishes and pots and pans, one for meat and one for dairy, because meat and dairy can't mix. And I, I didn't, really didn't want to do that. Um, and so, and so and, but, but I also agree, like, okay, I won't cook pork or shellfish in the home. Uh, and so, you know, so, so we had our kind of tenuous compromise, and I always figured that when we had kids – that that it, that would be I, w- I worried that that would become like the new battleground. Uh, how kosher are our kids going to be? Will we let them eat cheeseburgers when they're at a friend's house or at our house? Um, and instead, what's happened is that actually it's become less of an issue. Uh, I think my wife, we just sort of adjusted to the compromise, and and my wife more so than I have has just kind of mellowed on the issue and and has let some of these things go and. But I had never really talked to her about it. I never really said, like, how come? Why aren't we fighting about this? Because, you know, when you're not fighting about something, (laughs) it's better to just not bring it up. (laughs) Um, You know, like, I was afraid that I would sort of bring up old resentments. Um, But doing that episode gave us a chance to talk about those issues and me to kind of understand. And it was really nice, actually. She she basically said, said that, you know, it, like food is way more important to me than it is to her. Like she's not super into food. She like when I like every time I go away for work, she she always jokes that she always loses weight because she doesn't eat anything. <laughs> she just like forgets to eat dinner and then has like half a bowl of cereal on the couch while she watches TV after the kids go to bed. Whereas when I'm home, I'm like I'm gonna make this and it's gonna be awesome and let's all pick out. So so you know because food's so important to me and especially like our older daughter loves to eat and we love to eat together and you know my wife's feeling was like that's something that's really important to me and it's something that i bond with the kids on and we cook together and i cook with the kids and we have a lot of fun doing that and so like that's more important to her like us bonding and having that thing to share with each other uh my daughters and i is more important to her to my wife than observing kosher rules yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And so that and 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 I didn't know that that's how she felt. I just hadn't ever raised it because I felt like let's just let sleeping dogs lie. But um, but, but still no t- bacon, still no bacon episode, at home. That was what I that was what I learned. <laughs> Are you guys still not doing bacon? I know in the episode you guys had discussed it, but that's you're still not cooking bacon at home. No, and the truth is, I mean, this is a controversial statement, but I think bacon's kind of overrated anyway. Like, if I was going to push for a pork product to be cooked in my house, it wouldn't be bacon. And it's really not that healthy. And so it's like, we can, I can get, you know, we, I, my daughter can get her bacon at the diner. Like, I don't really care. I'd love to be able to grill a pork chop now and again. That would be really nice. <laughs> like some good carnitas or something like that. That would but, be at the yeah, top of the list. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with uh, cheeseburgers. If I can do cheeseburgers, you know, that's fine. The, re- the pork products I can get outside the home. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. What inspired you to put out the series? Well, 
We've done a few different series on food and race and culture and how they all come together. The first one was now about a year and a half ago called Other People's Food. And when we did that one, uh, a friend of mine uh, texted me and was like, oh, that, that one was more on the nose about cultural appropriation. He was saying he's got a friend who uh, who's white who adopted two uh, kids from Ethiopia, and she sometimes takes them out for Ethiopian food as a way to kind of connect with their uh, culture of origin. And the, that other series had gotten him wondering, well, like, how authentic of an experience is that, and what if it's not Ethiopians who are making the food in the kitchen? What does that mean? Um, but I was just very struck. I had, I had never heard of the idea that of people who adopt kids from other cultures or other countries using food as a way to connect them to their culture of origin. And it turns out that that's uh, a fairly common practice. I just was ignorant about it. But it struck me as really interesting. And um, and so that, that was the first kernel. And I've also, separately from that, I've, I've been always been super interested in the way that, in the science of how our palates are formed, like the genetics of how our palates are formed, to what degree do we pass down our palates from one generation to the next? Do we inherit our eating habits? To what degree are they um, environmental? Obviously, everything is a little bit nature and nurture, but like I'm fascinated by the science of it. And so those were the first two, initial two questions, the adoption, like uh, the food and, and cross-cultural adoption, and the science. Of, and, and, this, and, and then the science led me to just think more generally about, like, how do we pass on culture through food? And that became really the big question of the series, like from one generation to the next. How do we pass our cultures on through food, and what happens when there are grinding edges between different cultures in the same household, uh, or, or when people from, di- from different cultures are living under the same roof? How does, that, how does that work out, and what are the tensions, and what are the complications? So that was, that was the series. Yeah, I mean, the series was really well done, and I was excited to see it. It came out you know, right around the same time that we launched this show, and so there was some interesting crossover, and the way that you had chosen the stories and the people that you featured, I thought, was really well done. How did you choose those stories specifically to feature? You mentioned, obviously, your friend with the Ethiopian um, adoption, but, but the other ones, how did you find who to talk to? Well, um, it was a combination, and I should give a shout-out to my, uh, the producer of The Sporkful, Ann Noise Sandy, who does an awesome job, and she, you know, she was instrumental. I mean, she was featured in episode two, so that's how, that's how I found her. She sits right next to me in the office. Uh, but, you know, in, in, the content, in the process of talking through, you know, a series like that is months in the making, and so it's um, a lot of conversations, and we'll kind of talk through an idea and then kind of forget about it and then talk about it again. And in one of the conversations, Anne was saying, yeah, this kind of, you know, this is something that, that I struggle with. And I was like, well, maybe you should be on the show. And then I thought, well, then maybe I should be on the show, too, because I've struggled with it with my wife, too. And so we decided, you know, we're sometimes reticent to make, our, make the show about ourselves. We felt like this was an appropriate situation. And, uh, and, so, the, and so that was that. Was that. And then the, the, the other part of the, this, for the adoption episode, partly it was, it was the friend through my friend's connection who had the Ethiopian adoptees, but then uh, we talked to two Korean-American adoptees, and that was just sort of like, you know, putting calls out, friends of friends, doing some research, tracking people down. Um, but, you know, it's, that's the painstaking part of the process. So we're fortunate to be able to take that amount of time. But, uh, but you know, there's a lot of conversations with folks that don't end up in the show before you find just the right people. 
Yeah, absolutely. So you've talked to so many different people and, you know, we have this conversation going on about cultural appropriation in food. You mentioned Rick Bayless, for example, or, you know, something like Noma Mexico or, you know, even some of the smaller things like the burrito cart out in Portland, Oregon. What are your thoughts on cultural appropriation in food? Is it possible or how do you how do you think about that? Well, I guess I would say a couple of things. I, I think it is possible. It's certainly, like it can exist, um, and that, you know. But I, I, I try hard not to put myself in the position of becoming like the cultural appropriation police. I don't really feel like it's my place to be the guy who decides when something is problematic and when it's not. Um, the, the thing that's sort of my big takeaway, the thing that I have learned from working on, on that issue and some of these more sensitive issues of race and culture and food uh, over the past couple of years has been that like my biggest takeaway is that I think that too often the question becomes, is it cultural appropriation or is it not cultural appropriation? Or like, is this racist or is it not racist? Is that person racist or are they not racist? Or is this idea or whatever it is? And it becomes like, is it right or wrong? Is it okay or not okay? And it becomes this binary debate where everyone is supposed to take sides. And I feel like when that, as soon as that becomes the framework of the conversation, it gets like it, nothing useful, nothing positive ever. Rarely, rarely, I shouldn't say ever, but it's rare that something positive comes from that conversation because it becomes people quickly just sort of like fall into their own into their pre-existing camps. Instead, the question that I try to ask myself and try to get sporkful listeners to ask themselves and guests to ask themselves, and that I would encourage people to ask themselves and each other is: Can you see it from this other person's point of view? Like, try really, like, pause for a second and forget, stop worrying for a second about who's right or wrong. And just try as best you can to put yourself in this person's shoes and really think about the experience they've had and the life that they've had as best you can. Of course, you can never fully understand what it is to be another person. But, like, do your best. Try really hard to really take a second and imagine what this person's life has been like and then... Once you've done that and really taken a minute to do that, can you understand, once you're in that other person's shoes, how they can see it the way they see it? That doesn't mean you have to agree, necessarily. It doesn't mean you have to say that they're right and admit that you're wrong. It just means that you can see it. Just acknowledge that, like, that somebody else's perspective has validity. And I think, you know, that's what I try to do. And I think that that seems to me to lead to like a more not only a more productive and useful and positive place in conversation, but also a more interesting one. Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of what we all need right now, more empathy and respect for other points of view and and different cultures, especially as we continue to become more global and things become more and more interconnected. Yeah, you know, it's, you know, right. No, totally. A hundred percent. You know, and, and it's just, it really isn't that hard, but it's just like, it's, it, it, it's, it's, but it's so much easier to just say like, is this right or wrong? Take a side. Right. You know, and, and like, that's just what it becomes. And like each person has an opinion and people just, everybody wants to have an opinion or a take. And, um, and I just think that like the better question to ask is, can you see it from this other person's point of view? 
Yeah, that's a great point. Well, Dan, thank you so much for the inspiring conversation. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. And I highly recommend, if, I, if you haven't already, to check out the show, The Sporkful, found wherever podcasts are found. Dan, will you let people know how to find you online? Uh, yeah, it's at sporkful.com or, uh, yeah, just uh, anywhere you listen to your podcasts. I hope you'll check out The Sporkful. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm your host, Andrea Ween. You just listened to Meant to Be Eaten. And remember, if it's coming from a mom's stove, it's definitely meant to be eaten. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.